Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This year marks the 150th anniversary of the birth of Mahatma Gandhi. We're doing some segments to commemorate. Today we're going to talk about an incident that happened when Gandhi was 24 years old in South Africa. It shaped the course of history. Sriram Santi is an ophthalmologist by profession, and he is a Gandhi enthusiast, and he's chair of the Gandhi 150 U.S. Commemorative Stamp Initiative. He's also a trustee of the Gandhi Memorial Trust in Skokie and has presented at more than 100 forums on Gandhi. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Mr. McDonald. Can you explain what happened at this train station when Gandhi was 24 years old? That was a night, a historical night, for world history, for peace and nonviolence, that is June 7, 1893. Mohandas Gandhi was hired by a local Indian merchant by name Abdullah Sheikh to defend a case in his realist property issue. And he was hired because this gentleman, Mr. Abdullah, wanted a British trained attorney because otherwise it's difficult to defend himself. Secondly, as we all knew, at that time there was a lot of apartheid and almost every lawyer or attorney in South Africa was white person. So he couldn't but help to invite uh, Mohandas Gandhi to defend him. So this is 1893 in South Africa. Exactly. Excuse me, sir. How long have you been in South Africa? Uh, a week. I don't know how you got a ticket. Just what are you doing in this car, Pauline? I have a ticket. A first-class ticket. How did you get hold of it? I sent for it in the post. I'm an attorney and I didn't have time. There are no colored attorneys in South Africa. Go and sit where you belong. I'll take your luggage back, sir. No, no, no. Just a moment, please. You see? Mohandas K. Gandhi, attorney at law. I'm on my way to Pretoria to conduct a case for an Indian trading firm. Didn't you hear me? There are no colored attorneys in South Africa. Sir, I was called to the bar in London and enrolled at the High Court of Chancery. I am, therefore, an attorney. And since I am, in your eyes, colored, I think we can deduce that there is at least one colored attorney in South Africa. Smart bloody cattle. Throw him. Just move your black ass back to third class, or I'll have you thrown over the next station. But I always go first class. I've traveled all... So he gets tossed out uh, on his can at this train station, which has now become a famous place. You made a pilgrimage to the train station, everybody goes. A station called Peter Maritzburg, and... The station has become the epicenter for the peace and nonviolence movement. And Gandhi spent the night there. It was the middle of the night, and there was no train that was going to come pick him up, and, and it was cold. And he, and he had a lot of time to think while he was sitting there. What happened was his jacket was actually is in a suitcase, and he was so scared that he just covered himself in a fatal position, and he was scared to even open his uh, uh, suitcase to get the jacket. So all night long, he was shivering on the platform, and someone else was trying to help him. He didn't want to talk to them because he didn't know what else could happen. 
So he decided to stay overnight at the station. And the gentleman who was supposed to take care of him, Mr. Abdullah Sheikh, later on came and made sure he went to the Pretoria station the next day. How does this translate into a life of nonviolent resistance? Because he's right there in the fetal position. He is down. He is cold. He is knocked out. A few thoughts came over in his mind. He writes in his autobiography. First thought is, is it just to close stock, lock, and barrel and go back to India? Our second is try to resist right away whatever is the discrimination is happening are collective force. That means you need more people to support this cause and develop a strategy in the long time and then make a case so there is no color discrimination exists on our good earth. It sounds like he took number three. <laughs> and it took 21 years. He spent 21 years after that fighting discrimination in South Africa. Actually, this happened in 1893. In 1906, Another thing happened. What happened was that the purpose he came, the case was finished, and then he was about to leave South Africa. Then suddenly, South African government, the Transvaal government, wanted to start registering the Indian immigrants who came as indentured labor. And that registration and fingerprinting looked like something like a, a manifest slavery. So he came to know of it, and he decided not to go to India, stay back, and make an active force under the name of Satyagraha. And that has become a truth force on one side it is called. And he says truth means God will support. If you follow the right rules and laws, we will be able to accomplish our goal and go for freedom. Explain a little more about his development of the idea of Satyagraha. You mentioned it's truth force is is how it's translated. It's from Sanskrit originally. Yeah, Satya means truth. Truth, here he uh, interrelates as God, and he's looking for God's force. He's a big believer in prayer and religion. And then agraha means he's taking truth as his way of life, as well as way of fighting challenges. And there are two words they use. The English people, one of the gentlemen was trying to introduce him and said, this is Mr. Gandhi who's talking about passive resistance. And Gandhi said, no. My word is satyagraha. It has its own meaning. Now it has become just like yoga, mantra, has become its own word in international language. In passive resistance, you are able to use weapons to defend yourself, though you're sitting down. In uh, satyagraha, you just sit and don't do any resistance at all. You just offer love and sit there until they hear your challenge whatever is happening and make things happen. So when many people sat there, and that's why I think probably the strike concepts have come, but in this sense, use love and prayer and pleading, then that will accomplish your further goals. I'm talking with Sriram Santi, and he is a Gandhi enthusiast and is presented at 100 forums on Mahatma Gandhi. He's a trustee of the Gandhi Memorial Trust in Skokie, and we're talking about Satyagraha and what happened 126 years ago on June 7th in South Africa for the 150th anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi's birth this year. 
So how does he develop this with the people? Uh, because in South Africa, this became a known phrase and idea and people adhered to it. How do you get people to go along with these strikes and then the whole idea? It was initially difficult, but he was able to convince them by his own personal practices. And he daily does prayer and he does his own cleaning, even cleaning toilets. And some of those exercises which he did has impressed the other people to see what this man is. And of course, he did accomplish that one particular case which set an example for them to believe in him. And his way of life and lifestyle has acquired few people first, and then later on it added to more people. What he did was he bought about 100 acres of land in Durban and created the Phoenix Settlement. Then all the poor people and indentured labor, and so he first acquired 100 acres of land in uh, Durban and called the Phoenix Settlement. Then two years later, he got... Uh, 1,100 acres of land in Johannesburg and formed the Tolstoy farm. And there, it's like a force. He developed a style of implementing the Satyagraha movement. And it's like a training, just like a boot camp, as you call now, in a different sense. But it's a different kind of a boot camp where they've used peaceful attitude, prayer, love. He's a big uh, fan of Jesus Christ, especially the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he used that uh, offering the other cheek. And an eye for an eye makes whole world blind. And he always says, use love to attain and also get your enemies to listen to you. And that somehow convinced people. And they didn't have to acquire any arms to do that. That's what it is. Now, it was a long struggle. I mean, he was at it for 21 years in South Africa, and there were ups and downs. There were times he was jailed. There were times he cut deals with the authorities, and people doubted his leadership. There was the full nine yards of things going on. Absolutely. But in the end, it is his persistence, his perseverance, steadfastness, his love for God, his love for truth. It's a matter of time. It's like if there is a mountain, if you want to uh, break it, if you keep on hitting, it will break ultimately. So it is that steadfastness, the determination, the perseverance that what came confidence and further his goals. And in the end, there were this series of laws that applied to Indians in South Africa, and they were repealed. There were taxes, there were different things, and, and they eventually get repealed. Exactly. And he was able to accomplish that, both because of his attorney mind, as well as dedication through prayer. He keeps saying everywhere, God is truth, and God is the only way we can achieve and overcome obstacles. Now, tell us more about what happens today at the Peter Meritzburg Railway Station in South Africa. What's it like there? Uh, when I went in 1999, it's a regular station. It's really pretty and old. Very though, pretty, very renovated. Uh, we call it, there are two ways of looking. One is a tourist spot in a contemporary sense. Or we call it a Tirdhayat, Tirdhayat. Like I said, a historical place where an eminent soul lived and started this movement. 
So many people do go there. In fact, uh, I was talking to one of the persons in our consul's office the other day, and he was saying one of our past presidents, Mr. Pratibha Patel, went to the station. Whenever our Indian politicians visit there, they're supposed to write on a book, like a guest registry. And most of the time, uh, the secretaries write, and the politician just signed. But in this instant, one Mr. Suri, I have to m- mention his name purposefully because he was the secretary. And the President Pratibha Patil, she asked him, what should I do? He said, uh, you should write, ma'am. He took himself personal thing and said, you should write. And she wrote three pages and uh, signed it off herself. That's again, it's our reverence to Mahatma Gandhi. And whenever these celebrities go there, they have them go through the train journey what he went through from uh, Durban through Petermatsburg to Pretoria. Uh, last time I didn't have the opportunity to do that, but this time I think they're providing the train journey to me. And you're going for the 150th anniversary of Gandhi's birth. There's a big celebration. Yes, there'll be a program at the Petermatsburg station. There's a Gandhi group headed by one Mr. David Jengen, an honorific meeting in the name of Gandhiji for his 150th birth anniversary. When you think about the legacy of Satyagraha, what does it mean in our world today? Okay, let's think two ways. For me, this day is very important historically is because two world wars have happened in 1914 to 1919 and 1941 to 1944. Gandhi could not influence either of them because he was just a budding giant and his concepts have not gone worldwide. But since Gandhi showed the Satyagraha movement, he showed an alternative to nuclear war or other wars, having people able to come to table and discuss. As you have seen, President Trump and Kim Jong-un, they are willing to talk, and they are talking. And that concept, I think, literally brought into the forefront by Mahatma Gandhi. So I am the belief we avoided third, fourth, and fifth world wars because of that alternative he provided. And also he provided a movement of nonviolence, peace through nonviolence. That concept is very much needed because here uh, hatred is very prevalent. If I might say so, how am I practicing? I have two daughters. I told them, never use the word hate in our house. That's the first attempt of nonviolence. Thought process, nobody can control. But word and actions, one can control. So every time they think to use that word with force, they would rather use, I despise, than say, I hate you. I don't want to use that word in any other sense, but just to introduce the concept. So those kind of concepts at personal level will make it a collective force and make it a giant step towards peace across the globe. I'm talking with Sri Ram Santi, and he is an ophthalmologist by profession, a Gandhi enthusiast, and he is chair of the Gandhi 150 U.S. Commemorative Stamp Initiative. I want to ask you about the stamp initiative, and you've been trying to get the U.S. Postal Service to get out there with a Gandhi stamp. How has that been going? Okay. My first attempt happened in 1998. That was the 50th anniversary of Gandhi's assassination. And I came to know of Congressman Brown, Sherrod Brown, 
through my daughter. She worked with him as an intern. He came to my home, and at that time I requested him, could you facilitate Gandhi's stamp because so much violence is going on, so we can use this as a prelude to obtain uh, nonviolent across the globe or in USA. So he said he will try, and he attempted, but they refused. The concept is that as of 1970, U.S. Postal Service is not accepting any non-American-born person's requests. Uh, and also they need a three-year advance notice. I thought of accomplishing for uh, this October 2nd, when uh, 150th birth anniversary. But this time I also went through, because now it's 150th birth anniversary, so I would like to make a second attempt to accomplish that. And uh, I went through Congresswoman Robin Kelly from my constituency and uh, Congressman Raja Krishnamurti. And I'm getting the difficult challenges from the Postal Service. Though they already issued stamps for like Alfred Hitchcock, who is non-American born, John Lennon, who is a big uh, follower of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, stamped last year or two years ago. I think it's about time we bring these peace leaders like Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Cesar Chavez, Lacuelas, uh, to recognize them. And the request is that we have to make at least 20,000 signatures across the country. So I'm making a petition, and I have a, a website called www.gandhi150usstamp.org, and I have a petition letter on that. I wish people can access, print, and mail it to them. Again, it's a collective force that makes a difference. How true that is. And that sounds like a great initiative, and why not have more peace leaders on stamps? That would be... Thank Better you, than some of the crazy cultural things that we get on stamps. That seems all the more worthwhile. Thank you. The uh, rest of the world is releasing stamps across the globe. So USA also should take initiative. I mean, this is a, a movement will not come for another 50 years. And I keep saying for the committee which is existing and the Postal Service, an opportunity of a lifetime. And they can make a history that they facilitated Gandhi's stamp. Well, it sounds like a great idea, and I wish you success with this. Let's get that done. What's the website again? www.gandhi150usstamp.org. Sriram Santi is an ophthalmologist by profession, Gandhi enthusiast by choice, and he's a trustee of the Gandhi Memorial Trust in Skokie and presents on Mahatma Gandhi whenever people ask. And thanks for coming and talking with us about what happened 126 years ago on June 7th in South Africa, the founding moment of Satyagraha. Thank you, Mr. McDonald. Government proposals to privatize health care and education in Honduras have sparked days of protest. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the latest chapter in the destabilization of Honduras. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Government proposals to privatize health care and education in Honduras has sparked days of protest. It's another chapter in the destabilization of the country that is sending the most asylum seekers to the U.S. With me is Matt Ginsburg-Jakel. He's an interpreter and member of the Chicago-based human rights group La Voz de los de Abajo. And we're going to talk about what's been happening in Honduras. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me, Jerome. Uh, I wonder if you could explain how this got started, how these government proposals to privatize healthcare and education uh, kind of incurred all this wrath. Yeah, so the illegitimate regime of dictator Juan Orlando Hernandez of the National Party, uh, who was illegally reelected to a second term in elections that were described by every human rights and electoral monitoring body as fraudulent. Uh, this November 2017, has had a strong thrust towards privatizing public services and giving away uh, concessions to every natural resource and public good in Honduras. Um, and that's largely due to, and that's largely the reason why it has continued to receive U.S. backing, uh, both military and economically, because it's furthering an agenda that has pushed to open up opportunities to multinational corporations and to do away with the public safety nets there. So the latest wave of this is a renewed attempt, because this is not the first attempt, to privatize the public health care and education systems in Honduras. And that sparked a mass wave of protest and uh, led to days and days and days of people in the streets, followed by a promise to rescind the measure that had been pushed through Congress, um, only to shortly after have folks realize that they had actually no intent of rescinding it. Um, and we're going to move forward with it anyway. Now, there's been some incidents with uh, the burning of the U.S. Embassy gate last weekend, and uh, some dole trucks were attacked in another part of the country. Uh, what, what, what kind of focus, is that some kind of focus of the protesters to attack uh, U.S. things? Well, I think that it's pretty much the universal opinion of folks that are engaged in the defense of public education and health care and the environment in Honduras, uh, as well as those who have been victimized by human rights abuses under the current regime of dictator Juan Orlando Hernandez, that none of those issues would be before them if it weren't for continued unwavering U.S. support of this regime, that it's really been U.S. continued economic and military assistance uh, to the undemocratic government of Honduras that allows them to operate with the kind of impunity that they're operating with. And so things have reached a boiling point, and it makes logical sense that symbols of U.S. power in the country, namely the U.S. embassy and these dole trucks, would become targets of that anger. I do want to clarify, though, that there is also no proof that it was actually protesters who've been overwhelmingly peaceful in the face of uh, extreme repression, including use of live ammunition by security forces. There's no proof that it was actually them that burned either the dole trucks or the U.S. Embassy, and there are uh, both accusations of and a longstanding history of use of provocateurs uh, to create sort of false flag incidents to justify ongoing repression. But even if it were the latter case, um, it's the widespread knowledge that the U.S. is seen as propping up this regime that would lead whoever to plan those uh, burnings to see them as uh, believable um, expressions of the current attitude in Honduras. 
One of the things that seems to be fueling the uh, crisis and the protests is the revelation that the DEA had been investigating Juan Orlando Hernandez. And um, uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez says, well, that was, it was a few years ago and I was cleared. But obviously, uh, there's been a lot of higher ups and relatives of Juan Orlando Hernandez who have been uh, you know, prosecuted. So there's, uh, that seems to have done what to the protests? It's been like throwing gasoline on, on the fire. I mean, you have an untenable situation where people voted out of government only to have their votes not respected, uh, took to the streets to protest only to meet live ammunition, uh, attempted to flee the country only to see uh, migration criminalized and troops mobilized at the borders, um, and then people trying to defend the little bit of what's left of a social safety net, healthcare, and education, and being brutally repressed in the streets. And in the midst of this, to have the president's brother arrested and named by the DEA in the U.S. as a top drug trafficker, and then find out that the president himself is implicated within the investigation, um, and realize that essentially all of this is being done, all this brutality is being perpetrated on people. Uh, at the behest of a criminal organization, uh, there's no better way to describe the current government of Honduras than as the largest organized mafia in the Western Hemisphere at this point. I'm talking with Matt Ginsburg Jekyll. He's an interpreter and member of the Chicago-based human rights group Lavos de los de Abajo, and we're talking about what's been happening in Hernandez in uh, Honduras with uh, protests, uh, Honduran security forces with tear gas, live bullets are out there. It's been about a week now, and people are calling for the resignation of Juan Orlando Hernandez. Um, now, is um, how do how do you see this kind of um, changing? Uh, in the future, I mean, if Juan Orlando Hernandez is sticking to the government proposals to privatize healthcare and education, um, how does this? When do the protests stop? You know, it's they haven't stopped. The reality is that there's been continual protest in Honduras since 2009 and the U.S.-backed coup against then President Manuel Zelaya. There have been spikes and there have been dips within uh, the level of activity, but it's never stopped. Uh, there's never been a period of calm. There's been just one scandal after another where the regime that replaced Zelaya and its various iterations have showed themselves to be completely beholden to U.S. interests and corporations and completely willing to trample over the human rights of the Honduran people in order to protect those interests. So while that situation remains in place, I don't foresee this. Now, in this particular immediate crisis around the privatization of healthcare and education, I do think that it's possible, uh, given the scale of protest and the militancy of that protest, um, that the regime backs off to a certain extent on these measures, although that's not clear. They made, a, as I mentioned at the outset, an initial uh, gesture of backing off of privatizing healthcare and education, uh, only to then renew the push once they thought people were going to demobilize. Um, and I will say that things really are at a boiling point in Honduras. We've not seen this level of protest activity, this widespread and this fearless in the face of the kind of repression they're facing since the fraudulent elections of November 2017. Uh, and it's a very precarious situation um, that really could boil over into something with very grave consequences, not just for Honduras, but for the region. And this is the backdrop of the migrant caravans that are fleeing Honduras. The Trump administration can do all of its beating its chest it wants to and talking about Mexico needing to be a better enforcer and talking about the countries of Central America needing to stop the outflow 
follows immigration, but the reality is it's them who it's who are it's they it's the U.S. government it's the State Department who continues to prop up this illegitimate regime. They are the cause of those caravans of people who are fleeing a desperate situation. And you see things like Honduras's security and defense budget going up and the health care and education budget going down. There was a statistic from the National Commission for Human Rights that 40% of emergency rooms have inadequate medical cover. And there's people who are talking about um, maternity clinics that don't have enough bandages, gauze, supplements, doctors, the whole bit. Yeah, it's really shocking the conditions that uh, the majority of the Honduran population face when they go to try to receive medical attention. And one essential other piece of backdrop to this is that the major corruption scandal that rocked the first term of Juan Orlando Hernandez's presidency was revelations that uh, front false pharmaceutical companies were selling pills with flour rather than medicine in them to the public health system at inflated prices and then pocketing the massive earnings from those uh, criminal sales that led to people's deaths, by the way, who thought they were getting medicine and instead were getting flour, pocketing that money and paying off the National Party and directly paying into the camp- re-election campaign of Juan Orlando Hernandez. So that's the backdrop. That level of corruption uh, has been associated with this government from its inset from from the inception, and it has been uh, particularly around healthcare. And so, for them to then say, "Okay, now we're going to plunder the healthcare system in yet another way, right in front of your faces," is really just more than the hunter and people are willing to accept. Matt Ginsburg Jekyll is an interpreter. He's a member of the Chicago-based human rights group Lavoz de los de Abajo. Thanks for talking with us about the days of protest in Honduras, about the privatization of health care and education in Honduras. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jerome, for con- continuing to cover this. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Anne Frank, and uh, it's the 90th anniversary of what would be her birth. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Diary of Anne Frank is arguably the most well-known diary ever. It's a touchstone for understanding the Holocaust and the human condition. The diary has been translated into 60 languages and is part of UNESCO's Memory of the World Register. This month marks what would have been Anne Frank's 90th birthday. We're going to talk about what's happening at the Illinois Holocaust Museum this month. With me is Amanda Friedman from the Holocaust Museum. It's good to meet you. Hi, it's great to meet you too. Uh, Tell us about some of the things you're doing because there's some really cool stuff going on. We have a really exciting month planned to celebrate all things Anne Frank. Uh, Through our website and through our social media channels, we have a portal where Everyone, no matter where they are in the world, can record short videos where they talk about their own 
ways of journaling and chronicling their own experiences, whether it's in a book like Anne Frank did or using social media, using more high-tech methods. And our um, anybody listening can share those videos with us and we'll share them through our, our social media channels. We also have at the museum some really exciting things going on. All month, we are featuring a new interactive survivor experience um, through our Take a Stand Center featuring Ava Schloss, who was Anne Frank's stepsister. And this is really cool because really you, cool. You, have, you are having her there by hologram. <laughs> exactly. So this is really exciting technology developed by the USC Shoah Foundation in partnership with the Illinois Holocaust Museum. It is a pre-recorded interview with Ava Schloss. She was asked over 2,000 questions and through a holographic projection of Ava Schloss, visitors can come in, ask her questions and have a conversation with her. And so even though she's at home having a wonderful life, she visitors can come in and meet her and get to know not only her own incredible story of survival, but also have that connection to someone who knew Anne Frank and who lived with, with Anne Frank's father, Otto, after the war. And that's an incredible thing that the Shoah Foundation and, and Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg are involved with, and they, they're recording mm-hmm. genocide survivors from mm-hmm. all over the world and creating these holograms that people mm-hmm. can interact with. It's really amazing. And the the technology is mind-blowing. And we have both local survivors from the Chicago area and survivors such as Ava Schloss, who represent kind of the, the world of survivors at large who are available to be viewed at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. And one of the great projects that you do is um, with Holocaust survivors, bringing them out to students, mm-hmm. bringing, them, uh, bringing students in. And we're, one of the survivors is here with us. George Levy-Mueller is a Holocaust survivor who was born in Germany, spent part of the war hidden in the Netherlands as a child. Thanks a lot for joining us. You're welcome. Um, your your story is is, is unusual because it parallels Anne Frank's in a lot of ways. Uh, tell us uh, about your story. Well, uh, Anne Frank came from Germany and went to the Netherlands. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so uh, I I did the same with my sister in uh, 1939. Uh, my sister and I left Germany um, and uh, on a kinder transport, and we went to the Netherlands. And uh, we landed in uh, Rotterdam, and then we ended up in the south of uh, Holland uh, in, a, um, in a province called North Brabant in a little town called Eersel, not too far from the Belgian border. And now Anne Frank uh, famously hid inside a home. And you, you, did you hide inside a home, or did you, what, what did you do in another Both. Both. Uh, first, well, this was 1939, so we didn't have uh. to hide. Germany had not yet invaded Holland, and so we lived in this uh, convent in, in this um, south of Holland, and there were many children from uh, uh, Germany and Austria. Some of them were full Jewish, some of them were half Jewish, and... Uh, uh, and that seemed to be ma- uh, a difference after Germany invaded uh, Holland, w- which happened in 1940, and then the, the persecution against the Jews happened as well in, in Holland. Now, you uh, ended up going to uh, the same prison camp that uh, Anne Frank did. Yes. Uh, I know a little bit, little bit about Anne Frank. She first went to Westerbork, where we also were, 
my sister and I. Uh, but then she went to Auschwitz, and then she went to Bergen-Belsen. And uh, my sister and I, we first went to a place called Furcht, which is a concentration camp in in the Netherlands. And from there we went to Westerbork, which is a uh, trans, like a place where they, where they uh, keep you for a while and then send you on. And from there, my uh, Ursula and I went to uh, Bergen-Belsen, uh, in 1944, uh, which is in Germany. And we were there in uh, we, January of 1944 until uh, April or so of 1945, when we were put on a train uh, to go somewhere else, and we spent 13 days on this train. And then we were, libera- we were liberated by the Russians. Oh, very interesting. Um, how do you... <laughs> When you explain this experience to young people today, um, what's it like? What what kind of things do you want to impress on them? Well, uh, I give a lot of these uh, talks to uh, to these kids, and uh, basically what I do is I tell them what happened from the beginning to the end, and then I also tell them that I'm not trying to say it wasn't as bad as as it seems because it was, but I'm I try to give them some uh, thoughts about uh, how to survive, and in in other words, that uh, you don't only when you're in this camp, you you don't only think about how bad it is, and you think about uh, things that uh, where's my next piece of bread coming from, and things like that. Also, I knew about Normandy which today really means something because today is uh, the celebration of that. We knew about the Russians, where they were coming from, uh, from the other side, and every day there were hundreds of planes coming over, American planes during the day and at night, British planes, and we could tell uh, what direction they were going and we could tell uh, what the city they were going to bomb. And so I always knew, I never doubted, I wasn't going to make it out of there somehow. I've got to ask what it was like being liberated by the Russians and what happened then. Well, we were on a train for 13 days at the end of the war. The British, in the meantime, liberated uh, Bergen-Belsen, and a few days later we were liberated on this train. And uh, the Russians, uh, when they liberated us, uh, they they were not interested in us, actually. The war was still going on. And they were like the shock troops, and so we asked them, what, where should we go, what should we do? And they said they didn't care, and there was a, a town near there called Turbitz, and that was like a ghost town. Most of the German people lived there. They were afraid of the Russians, and they had gone to the west uh, where the Americans and the British were coming. And so then all the people, including my sister and I, we just moved into one of these empty houses, and at first I had to steal the food from the farms and things. But then after a while, uh, the Russians took good care of us. How did you come to the U.S.? Well, <clears throat> uh, how, how did I come to the U.S.? My, I have an uncle. His name is Joseph Mueller, Dr. Joseph Mueller. He was married to, uh, to my mother's sister. And uh, he was a, a doctor, an MD. And uh, he fled Germany to save her life. And he settled in Chicago. And uh, when we were liberated in 1945, 
Uh, we still stayed in Holland for in the Netherlands for another two years or so. And in 1947, my sister and I then uh, uh, came to Chicago, and we lived with my uncle uh, Joseph Mueller in Chicago. We're talking with George Levy Mueller. He's a Holocaust survivor who was born in Germany and spent part of the war hidden in the Netherlands as a child, very similar to Anne Frank's uh, situation. And we're marking Anne Frank's 90th birthday this month with the Illinois Holocaust Museum. They have a number of things going on. One of them is a talk tonight with Ronald Leopold. He's executive director of the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam, who's in town for the event. And it's great to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, I was reading that the Anne Frankhausen is um, the most visited site in the Netherlands. Uh, yes, almost together with uh, our beautiful Rijks Museum and Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. We have uh, 1.3 million visitors every year, half of them under the age of 30. So we have a very, very young audience. And uh, it's really remarkable to see how the interest in the story is still so huge, especially among fourth and fifth generations. I mean, their grandparents are born after the war, and they're still very much interested in, uh, in visiting this place where Anne was in hiding, where she wrote her diary. And um, I feel that uh, although they have less knowledge about it, and that's also where we come in, I mean, we would like to, to give them a little bit more uh, information about the context and the historical backgrounds. But I feel it's very hopeful and inspiring to see these uh, huge numbers of young people coming to the Anne Frank House. What's that like um, with people having less – they basically have less historical background about World War II in general, right? That's correct, yes. Uh, Compared to, let's say, the visitors who came to the house 20 years ago, yes, they have less knowledge. But I feel that it's very important to see that their interest in the story is still increasing. And uh, and I'm very uh, I'm very honored also to be here with uh, with George, who uh, who's still visiting schools because really from an educational point of view nothing beats the testimony of a survivor. It it it, it lasts a mark on these on these kids. It's it's really very very impressive. So uh, it's we are very fortunate to 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 have people like George among us tell their stories and uh, and have uh, you know and 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 what you see is basically that these kids they know that of course it happened 75 years ago but it has a huge relevance for their own lives uh, what happened to George what happened to Anne it was all the work of human hands it tells us something about who we are um, and uh, in that way, it serves as a mirror. And I feel that's why it's so important to keep telling those stories and uh, to keep telling the stories to these generations that do not necessarily know a lot about the history. Um, what are, what's the crowds like? Where, where, who are the people who come to the Anne Frank House? Uh, it's, is it um, mostly people from other countries? Is, it, uh, is there a large Netherlands component? Ninety percent of our visitors come from abroad. Uh, mostly, the, they're mostly tourists coming to Amsterdam. It's on top of their lists. Uh, they're always struggling to get tickets because usually we're sold out. I actually I gave my talk yesterday evening, and people came to my talk afterwards and said, "You know, 
how can I get to tickets to the Anne Frank house because you know I was up at the night it's it's online reservation only so you need to book your tickets online and we you know we are on on a Dutch time in a Dutch time zone so people are up during the night they told me yesterday that at three o'clock in the night they tried to get tickets for the Anne Frank house so 90% of them come from abroad they come from all backgrounds they have um, and what is fascinating is how they connect to the story of Anne Frank, which in itself is, of course, the story of the persecution of Jews in the Netherlands during the Second World War, which is not necessarily what people coming from Latin America or from Asia or from Africa are familiar with. Uh, but they do find on a more universal level, they do find a connection to it because, again, they, they, the story shows us what we human beings are capable of. It shows us um, that we, you know, just, we need to protect ourselves against ourselves. Um, and it also, as George's story, there, there's a resilience. Uh, there's a story of resilience. You, you, you can um, survive anything, I think. George? Uh, yes, you can. Uh, I believe that you can uh, survive anything if you want to. Uh, you just keep going. Are, are there um, a lot of? Uh, I mean, people are still finding out new things about Anne Frank. Uh, I, I was reading recently, just a few years ago, that people thought she died uh, earlier in the camps than than was previously known. You know, it was thought that she died just before liberation, but it was maybe a month or two earlier than that. Um, how, are, are there misconceptions about her? Are there things people um, kind of get wrong or – I, I think the main misconception uh, is uh, the fact that we call her writings the diary of Anne Frank. Uh, and when you come to visit the Anne Frank house, you will see actually two works of Anne. You will see her diary that she kept as a child. She started. She got it on her 13th birthday, June 12, 1942, and she started to write until she was arrested in August 1944. But during the last three months of being in hiding between May 1944 and August 1944, she rewrote her diary and she called it herself, it, she called it herself a novel. She wanted that work to be published. So it's technically called the B version of the diary, but it's actually a work of literature. And it's actually where you see a writer writing a manuscript that she wanted to have it published after the war. So what we call the Diary of Anne Frank, what people would buy in, in, in any shop uh, here in the U.S., is actually a mixture of the diary she kept as a child and that work of literature she wrote during those last three months, which she could not complete. She was caught, um, so it remained incomplete, 360 pages, 17 pages, and and it's really remarkable to see her talent as a writer. And her sister, her older sister, kept a diary as well, but that was lost. Yes, uh, we know from Anne's diary that Margot, her sister, also kept a diary, but that one was was lost, just like parts of Anne's diary were lost. Um, how did it survive? After the, the, the eight people in hiding were caught in August 1944, uh, one of the four helpers, they were employees of Anne's father's business, 
they went straight into, she went straight into the annex, a, a woman called Mipchis, and tried to save as much as possible before the Nazi helpers would come and empty the place. Uh, so she, she grabbed everything she could, which was a couple of notebooks, all these loose sheets that Anne wrote this literary work on, and, uh, and that's what, uh, what's, what is still with us. Uh, at least one notebook is missing. Uh, her first notebook, the, the famous Red Jack diary that she got for her birthday, ends in December 1942. And the next notebook starts in December 1943. So the whole, that whole year misses from the diary she kept as a child, but fortunately is in that rewritten part diary that she wrote in the last months of hiding. And Anne Frank's father survived the war and wrestled with publishing this. He, did, he almost didn't do it. Yes, it's a remarkable story. He was the only one, actually, of the eight people in hiding who survived. And uh, when he got back to Amsterdam, this woman, Mipris, gave him these diary writings of, uh, of his daughter. And uh, first of all, first of course, he struggled with reading it. It was a very emotional experience. Uh, but then, yes, uh, he very much struggled with finding a, finding a publisher, so many of the publishers in Holland feel very sorry about that, of course, because now it's... Uh, 60 it's, languages, uh, yes, <laughs> millions of absolutely. Uh, copies. Um, now, the Anne Frank House, uh, you collaborate with the Illinois Holocaust Museum and others all across the world, I imagine. That's correct. Uh, it's actually the mission of a father who wanted, uh, who was uh, managing to transform his personal, personal tragedy into a mission for the future. And so when the Anne Frank House opened to the public in 1960, uh, he wanted it to be not just a museum, but also very much an educational organization. And that is what we are doing until today. We are doing like 400 projects on average in 30, 40 countries. And we are very fortunate to have this wonderful institution here in Chicago, the Illinois Holocaust Museum, as one of our partners. And it's basically... Uh, it, it, it's focused on what can we learn from this history? What can we learn from this history? Absolutely. Ronald Leopold is executive director of the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam. George Levy Mueller is a Holocaust survivor who was born in Germany and spent part of the war hidden in the Netherlands as a child, like Anne Frank. And Amanda Friedman has been here from the Illinois Holocaust Museum. And this month, all kids are free. All kids and students. So under five is free always. And visitors age five to 22 are free for the month of June. Well, I hope people can get over and check out um, the, the hologram and everything else at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to be broadcasting from the Forum on Global Cities, and we are going to be talking about sustainability with the mayor of Helsinki and transportation and urban transportation issues uh, around the globe. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.